I'm Patrick O'Mara, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, musicians, and politicians, and we try to get to know the person. Our guest today is Ambassador Kim Beasley, the ambassador from Australia to the United States. Thank you for joining us, Ambassador Beasley. It's very good to be with you, Patrick. It's a privilege to be on your show. Thank you. Ambassador Beasley has had many identities over the years. He's been a Rhodes Scholar. He's been a distinguished politician. He's been Chancellor of the Australian National University. As a politician, he had a wide range of portfolios, aviation, defense, transport and communications, deputy prime minister, leader of the opposition in Australia, and now ambassador. But I think it might be fun for us to start, if I may call you Kim, with some of your academic credentials, since this is a university radio station. <laughs> That's so fine. Good. Uh, you know, one of the things that intrigues me mm. is you were someone who did a degree in Oxford, at Oxford, uh, in political science, looking at Indian Ocean security. And you actually taught at the University of Western Australia in the political science area in politics. And then you're an active politician. Tell me, did the experiences of studying politics have any effect on you as an active political figure? Oh, absolutely. You know, you, you can't uh, compartmentalize your life. And uh, not simply what I did at Oxford when I was at the University of Western Australia before. I was actively engaged in politics. That was the era. It was dominated uh, at the time, of course, by the Vietnam War. Uh, but it was also an era in which uh, universities were replete with uh, ideologies of assertion that, uh, that made life impossible for university administrators, academics and the rest. It was, uh, it was a time of turmoil, not so much turmoil in the university I was in, but nevertheless, these things are obvious. And inevitably, if you're studying politics and history, which is what I was doing, the practical day-to-day -day experiences, the long-term perspective would be conflated with the historical study. So the things I did at Oxford and the things I did at the University of Western Australia were immensely useful to me in political life, particularly useful in ministerial life, because among the portfolios I held, I was defence minister, and the only effective training I had for that was at Oxford. Now, in politics... We divide the world, perhaps, between real and ideal. There's realpolitik, and then there's idealism. How do you balance these? How would you, did you have an understanding of this? Did you have a better understanding of the reality of politics because of your training, or did you um, still have a sense of the ideal of idealism in politics? Well, you know, I, I spent a long time in politics in Australia. I was 27 years in the, in the National Parliament. And lots of kids over the years have come to me and said, look, I'm interested in politics. I want to start in politics. What do I do? My first question to them is, what do you believe? So if you go into politics simply for a career, uh, instead of doing it as part of your, the expression of your system of belief, you'll become a dangerous person. Yeah. And uh, you actually have to have in politics fundamental belief to start with. Now, that doesn't mean that what you're going to be is a dictator, nor does it mean that you're always going to implement your beliefs. But you need some grounding. And if you have no commitments, if you have no ideological stance, you have no grounding. Mm -hmm. You know, then you become the sort of careerist politician that drives people nuts if you don't. You had a great role model in your father. I've been reading about Kim Beasley Sr. And so much comes through. He was someone who was always pioneering new directions. He was someone who advocated Aboriginal rights. He was someone of deep moral convictions. His influence on you must have been profound. Dad was all ideology. <laughs> he was all belief system mm -hmm. uh, in politics. He... He, he was often accused of being a very impractical man in the political process, and to some extent that was true. But um, 
The thing I always find interesting about my father is you can sit down and read one of his speeches now and it has a contemporary ring to it and you cannot do that with any of his colleagues. It's, uh, so he was, he was pretty prescient and yes, he had an enormous influence on all his children. Uh, we used to have, uh, when he was back from Canberra, which was not uh, a heck of a lot, you know, there were, there were lots of, my mother all effectively brought us all up as a single parent. But, um, but when he was back from Canberra, every meal was a tutorial. I think we quizzed him like we were Gestapo agents, so I think he found it very draining, but he was always generous with his, uh, with his views. And he was very much in the Labour Party, obviously. Mm. Has Labour been transformed from his time through the time to the present? You know, one asks questions about Labour parties. I mean, I look at the transformation mm. of the British Labour Party. And, and has Australia been through these same changes? Oh, yeah. The Labor Party is the, Australi- is the oldest Australian political party. It's, uh, it's existed in Australia since before the Federation. And that can be said of no other political party in the Australian system. And uh, it's had many manifestations and it's changed fundamentally at different points of time. I mean, it started with a very, very racial underpinning. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was it was a, the, a party devoted to the white Australia policy. Uh, it is exactly the opposite to that now. I guess one of its greatest transition, and this would be disputed by a lot of people in the Labor Party, was probably in the early seventies when I was a young man, when it formally transformed itself from a sort of democratic socialist party to a social democratic one. It went from a focus as the basis of its belief on the the, the uh, socialisation of the means of production, distribution and exchange, replaced that uh, with uh, an ideology founded around equality of opportunity. So that, that, was, that was quite a fundamental underpinning mm-hmm. shift, which an awful lot of people in the Labor Party didn't fully recognise at the time. But that shift was represented in the, the Whitlam government of the mm-hmm. early 70s, of which my father was a member. So he was education minister. And so we, it changed, the party's focus changed from how do you organise nationalised industry and uh, those, uh, mm-hmm. that type of economic perspective, uh, how do you move from that to focusing on access and equity issues in education, right. which is what was, uh, what was in, in, inherent in that, uh, that change in ideological approach. But, uh, of course, at the same time, the notion of jobs, the notion of health, the notion of labour being interested in these in a particular way remained a constant. Oh, look, when, when I was the party leader, uh, we tested a multiplicity of slogans, you know, all of them sort of urging newness, mm-hmm. urging leadership. The slogan that most appealed to the Labour Party base was simple three words, jobs, health, Education, Right, exactly. If you appeared with that underneath you as a Labor Party leader, people saw your campaign as essentially authentic. It, it, it sometimes prohibited you from reaching out more broadly into the community as you would have liked. But, uh, but nevertheless, it was the meat and potatoes of a Labor commitment. Mm-hmm. What does it take to be a good politician? What does it take to be a good leader? Is it, is it particularly an Australian politician, or would you say they are universal skills and commitments that a good politician has? I think they're universal. And most of us who are in politics draw our heroes and role models, not simply from Mm -hmm. the politicians of our own society. We'll draw them from uh, examples, democratic examples elsewhere. I mean, my my favourite politician, I suppose, of all time is Abraham Lincoln. But... um, I think it is a combination of two things, belief and listening. Firstly, you need, as I said before, that basic uh, uh, grounding in, in what you believe about the world. And secondly, you need a capacity to listen to what other people think because they won't think as you do. And if you're a democratic politician, then the essence of uh, your craft is to meld your policies based on your fundamental beliefs. Mm-hmm into a formula that is comprehensible across the board in your society, moving at a pace determined not by you, 
uh, but by the community around you. So you have to listen. And uh, you need an awful lot of luck. One of, the, one of the Labor Party leaders at home said, you know, politics is 90% luck, 10% ability. <laughs> if you're a lucky politician, you'll get there. If you're an able politician, you've got a one in 10 chance. You know, as, as a person interested in universities, I'm delighted that um, ANU is, of course, a world-class university. And I notice with interest that your father played a key role in helping to establish it. Where, where do you see a university and, and you were chancellor of that university. Mm. Where do you see a university in this new context in terms of government, in terms of policy? Is there a key role? Universities are the focal point of civilization. They are the institution which carries the culture. Yeah. Now, uh, th- they can do it well or they can do it poorly. Or they can do it selectively or they can do it broadly. They've got choices. When you are privileged to live in the United States, because of the uh, the enormity of the size of the place, uh, the, and therefore the intellectual opportunities are so varied, universities can afford specialisations and afford to be very good in some things. But one of the things that you do, apart from all the other things that universities do, you know, advance ourselves technologically. Uh, train the uh, the peak end of the workforce. All these are essential tasks, and uh, they have to do them well. But if you're talking about the community as a whole and where they're situated in the sort of long sweep of history, it's as the place that maintains and develops the culture. But can it also perform a role in keeping public servants and bureaucrats aware of their jobs and up to speed in where they should be with new new ideas? It depends where the university is. Yeah. You know, to be frank, I mean, obviously, most people who arrive to, in, in political life have come from, from some campus somewhere. Most of them will have come from their home campuses. Uh, but there are some uh, centres of ongoing governmental influence and in education, I guess. And uh, in the United States, the, the fair percentage of those are on the East Coast. In Australia, it's the ANU. Good. The newest part of your life, U.S. Ambassador... You've had many incarnations, and I just thought we might chat about that for a moment. You know the United States well, and you know the characters over many years. Has that been very helpful to you? Well, I love this place. I first came here in 1969 in a year of troubles as a sort of as a student visitor, but I started coming here regularly from about 19, uh, early 1980s onwards. And uh, it's been my privilege over the years to know many people in in American politics or governmental life, I should say, more than politics. And it's always been a source. The United States has always been a source of enormous fascination to me and indeed to most Australians, I've got to say. Now, I'll give you one statistic, which I think you'll find amusing. Pew Research did a study across a number of countries, including the US and Australia, about who was interested in the last U.S. presidential election. And in the United States, 83% said they were interested in the presidential election. In Australia, 84% said they were interested in the the U.S. presidential election. So you're in focus here. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) uh, Defence, which is one of your great interests. And that in some ways also reflects on your knowledge in terms of the ambassadorial role. Yeah. Was the defence ministry one of your favourites? It was the favourite. Um, it was... Uh, I, I, I am able to boast one or two things in politics, and one of the things I can boast is I was the last Australian Cold War defence minister. Mm-hmm. The Berlin Wall came down in my time. So uh, by the time I'd become defence minister, the uh, Australia was intimately connected with the US strategic deterrent. And But also under pressure to rethink, particularly in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, its own uh, self-reliant defence stance and, and to balance those two, uh, two tendencies in Australian defence policy was an interesting exercise. So I found it a, a terrific challenge. But uh, when it comes down to the parts of the job that were most fascinating to me, there were two. One was when you're out with the troops. That, that was always mm-hmm. fascinating. The other was dealing with the main ally. Uh, the people I dealt with, George Schultz, Cap Weinberger, Dick Cheney, 
these are truly fascinating people and um, they uh, taught me a lot and, um, and enabled me to achieve a bit. I think this is a point where we take a little break for some music and I noticed you've picked Pink Floyd and of all of the Pink Floyds, you've picked Comfortably Numb. I think that's a wonderful title. Yeah, that's what I feel now. <laughs> Hello. Is there anybody in there? Just not if you can hear me. Is there anyone home? Come on, come on down. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. I thought it might be useful for us to talk about some current challenges that Australia faces and maybe that the world faces, and I'd like to, to move a bit in that direction. Absolutely. In particular, Australia at the moment has faced some natural disasters, mm. floods, fires. Mm. What are the long-term implications of this? What, how do you see it? Well, in, in Australia, I think there is very broad acceptance of the view that the globe is experiencing climate change and that uh, we've always been a continent where extremes are likely. Australia is a hard continent to inhabit. It uh, is very dry and um, quite marginal adjustments in the performance of weather makes big adjustments in the outcomes in our agricultural industries and the livability of the place. And so um, the, uh, the, the moving to a point where you get the extreme events which happen anyway, happening with greater intensity and more frequently, does get the public mind, does get mm -hmm. the public attention. But uh, we are some part of Australia is always droughted and some part of Australia is always being flooded. And in the relevant season, some part of Australia is always going to be hit by, we call them cyclones, you call them hurricanes. Uh, I've been told once why that is so. Apparently that's something to do with the movement of winds in the southern and northern hemisphere. And we are always subject to uh, wild, what you call wildfires, we call, uh, we call bushfires. So there's always a struggle on the continent. And we are, we are as a result of that very weather conscious. So this is influencing, I think, the debate in Australia on um, what we ought to do about climate change. And uh, it influences, uh, in part, some of our international outlook on that. It's not an extreme debate. It's, it's not uh, overly passionate, passionate and overly intense, but it is a discussion. What about the immediate? The long term, clearly, we have to all be concerned with climate change. Mm. But the immediate needs for reconstruction, for rebuilding and facing these natural disasters – and they are natural disasters, but there have been a sequence of them that yeah. have been more intense than usual. Well, that's quite correct. They are more intense than usual. Several things have happened. Firstly, because we experience them so frequently, we tend to be fairly able to handle them within the framework of our own emergency services. All our state governments have very good emergency services with well-tested links to federal aid, particularly from the military. And, uh, and so our responses tend to be pretty good, even when overwhelmingly, uh, when the event is uh, maybe similar but in dimension overwhelmingly different. That happened with the Queensland floods. 
So we we get very generous offers of help, and and we do take some of it up. The rebuilding is a different matter. Rebuilding is hard. The initial uh, clean-up phase a bit easier. Take the mayor of Brisbane, for example. Put out a call uh, and said to the the people around, uh, look, uh, down in the river areas, uh, we've been flooded out. The floods have receded. We need a clean-up. Please come and help us. Bring your own food, uh, wear boots and wear gloves um, and, uh, and, and water. Don't expect us to have anything there for you because we won't. 20,000 people turned up and did the job in three days. And so there, there, there's that can-do spirit. But then it comes to the big items of infrastructure, mm-hmm. if you like, that have been knocked over. Generous offers have been made by the United States in that regard for the Army Corps of Engineers. And as time goes by, some of these will be taken up. The government, the, the, in, in Australia, there is a, a sort of tradition of send round the hat. And uh, that is uh, to, to assist folk. Well, it, a lot of people donated generously, but on, and a lot of people from here, I might say. We had a number of fundraisers in the US, and Americans, as always, were very generous. But uh, the government also put in place a one-off tax levy on middle and upper income earners in Australia. That passed the Australian Parliament recently. That will pay for most of uh, what needs to be done. It won't be a strain. It won't be a strain on the Uh, overall economic? Yeah, it will be, a bit. But not as much for us uh, as the Christchurch earthquake is for the New Zealanders. Uh, We estimate the floods had a sort of about a 1% punch on our GDP. But for the for the Kiwis, uh, yeah. it was eight percent, or for Japan, for that matter. Oh, Japan, that's it's untold. overwhelming, isn't it? And that's no. not finished. No. The disaster continues as we speak. Right. Um, the tsunami may be over, but the nuclear uh, reactor uh, damage is serious issue. going on. Tell me about immigration. I want to ask a little mm. bit about that. Australia has been very hospitable and open. Are there limits to? Immigrant populations coming into Australia? Well, well, there are always limits, uh, but the limits have been pitched at a a very high level. Mm -hmm. Um, We got up to about 250,000 a year. Well, multiply that by 15 and you get the American equivalent. Uh, So that was, it's not as high as that now, and there's a debate underway at the moment in Australia on um, the capacity of our cities to match the increasing population to the infrastructure they're developing with a strong view that perhaps um, we're overdoing it. Now, that's, uh, that's one view. Uh, then, on the other hand, you have chronic labour shortages in uh, areas of uh, my home state of Western Australia and in Queensland, which is causing the, a delay in the realisation of an awful lot of mining investment. There's, there's two sides to it. But Americans would love to have our problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about the movement of three to 5,000 people yeah, a year. It's not, it's not a huge... Uh, which is sort of a, yeah. you know, a night-time's work on the border. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we've talked <laughs> about natural disasters and we've mm. talked about economic issues. Now, what's happening with the political system? Suddenly we're in the coalition world. And I always think of Australia as the clear two-party world. Is this going to be chronic... <laughs> Oh, well, I, I think most people in Australian politics would say they hope not. <laughs> this is, uh, I don't think anyone on the conservative or yeah. the, uh, the Labor side of politics would take the yeah. view that this is ideal. Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't happen that often. The last time a, a government tried to operate in the circumstances the current government operates was back in 1940. And, um, and the government in 1940 changed in the course of that term when the independents uh, switched sides from uh, from the Conservatives to Labor. So um, the government has to do the best it can to get its program up. It's a situation with which I am completely unfamiliar, as it never operated when I was in Parliament. <laughs> All the years you've been. But, uh, as I talk to uh, friends and colleagues on both sides of politics, it's workable, but it does oblige a government to do quite extraordinary things in consultation, uh, which is a challenge to skill sets that I certainly don't possess. So I'm full of admiration for those uh, in Australia who do. 
And dare I ask the big question, republic or not a republic? Well, a majority of Australians uh, have said and, and still continue to say that they think the time has come for an Australian head of state and uh, a republic. One time, however, it has been put to the public, uh, they have uh, voted against it and voted against it quite decisively uh, in every state. There are many factors engaged, I think, in that defeat, but uh, one of them would be that the uh, having said you want a republic, the question then arises, what model? And there is no agreement in the country on the model. I think, too, there is a a strong residual affection for the, the current royal family, and uh, that also influences the vote. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that the government will be putting it on the agenda any time soon, but they have said they will. So at some point of time, you'd expect that there would be another vote over uh, whether or not we get an Australian head of state. Another area, as we talk about current issues for Australia, is in so many ways, Australia is an Asian Pacific nation. Mm. So Asia and turning towards Asia is of crucial importance, both from security, from the aspects of trade, for um, political reasons. Mm. Is Australia more attuned to the Asian realities than the United States? Probably is. Uh, the U.S. Is, is pretty good on that front. Um, the United States has been really for a century, if not longer, actually longer, engaged with uh, the uh, Asia-Pacific region. And it was critical for Australia that the US had that engagement. Australians are totally focused on the North. Um, We have a a, a comprehension, all of us, that we need to have a complete understanding of the region, uh, that we need to comprehend it economically and that our economic future is intensely bound up with it. And that uh, from time to time, security issues will arise. We've already had that experience. They do. Sometimes those uh, threats can be of an existential nature, uh, and they were. So there is a, um, an understandable singularity of mind uh, for us that simply is not applicable here. China is an important economic partner in terms of raw materials, in terms of all other things. Mm. But China is a complex world to deal with. Mm. Back to real and ideal, <laughs> yes. if I may. Certainly in our education system, uh, there is a, a strong view that um, uh, we should treat the study of language and culture in the region around us uh, very seriously, and China is at the forefront of that. And uh, so there are a lot of Australians who understand a great deal about doing business with China, and we have a foreign minister who was a prime minister who actually speaks the, uh, the Mandarin language. And there is also a, a distinct shift in our uh, traded goods to a focus on the Chinese market. It's not yet as great as our orientation once was to Japan in the late 1980s, but it's getting there. Uh, it's not by any means the exclusive Asian market with which we engage. Uh, Japan's important, Korea's important, Taiwan's important. Uh, Taiwan's part of China and the, uh, they're, they're separated out for the purposes of calculation on trade figures. And the uh, Association of Southeast Asian Nation States are important and the fastest growing area is India. The Chinese relationship is very, very strong. But uh, that is in trade. In investment, the um, bulk of Australian overseas investment goes to the United States. So we sell to China and we trade with the United yeah, States. Yes, that's a good <laughs> distinction. <laughs> oh, invest, I should say, right, in the United States. Yeah. Trade with China and invest, and invest in the, with US. the US. I um, noticed with interest in one of your recent speeches, you referred to the Prime Minister launching a new institute, a substantial one, I think mm. it was 50 million. Uh, U.S. dollars for um, the creation of a center for the study of China in the world. Mm. And that's indicative, isn't it, of this discussion we've been having of the relationship between academics and politics. 
Oh, look, absolutely. Uh, there is uh, that's of course at the ANU that yes, we're discussing exactly. there, and and the ANU is perceived by the Australian government as of, of all the universities as one which sort of has to carry the can, if you like, mm-hmm. for the uh, uh, for the development of issues of importance to the public service of uh, Australia in uh, in Canberra, not, but not exclusively. Right. The uh, Chinese studies aren't just a phenomenon at the ANU; they are in fact that phenomenal at least one or two universities in every state. And uh, so the China scholarship is, is ubiquitous in, in, in mm-hmm. Australia, but that's, going, that's definitely our biggest institute. In fact, uh, in, in Asia-Pacific scholars overall, the concentration of uh, academics with expertise in the Pacific, in Pacific scholarship, is greater at the ANU than any other university on earth. So that's a real strength. And uh, that strength, I might say, is added to by a relationship the ANU has with the University of Indiana. Yeah, we've been delighted with the special Mm. relationship, especially looking at pan-Asian interests. Yeah. What about North Korea? Yes. Where do you stand? Well, that is an enormous challenge for China. For good or ill, the Chinese have placed themselves in in a position uh, where they are seen as having the back of North Korea, mm-hmm. and they are seen as the as the uh, as the power with the capacity to influence in any particular direction, and That's North right. Korea is doing things in international politics of an exceptionally damaging character, uh, and they're not acceptable now. A lot of that argument uh, re- revolves around their attempt to attempts to establish themselves as a nuclear power. But it's also uh, offences that are committed against the um, the terms of the armistice negotiations, which concluded the war. And one of the things I admire in the uh, in the way in which Americans are now running their uh, their foreign policy is that there's there was quite an astute piece of crisis management at the end of last year between the United States and China of what was then a, an outbreak of uh, potential serious difficulty uh, between North and South Korea, which uh, I must say at that point of time gave me a great, great deal of hope that uh, US and China would work this one out to the very great benefit of all of us. I think it's time for some more music. Now, we started with Pink Floyd, and I gather you have a great interest in the Rolling Stones. <laughs> What yes. would you like to hear? Well, what about down the road a piece? Because it's a it's a very American song, that, and uh, I think it uh, it sort of it sort of fits in with an American rock and roll tradition. That one, and uh, but it's my childhood. You're just getting my childhood, as they are. <laughs> and it's also kind of nice to think of things going down the road a piece. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, we've been discussing politics on many levels. I'd like to move now to talk about some broad issues that affect all of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, this whole question of global instability I find very troubling. And what can we do? What can the United States and Australia do? I know we've, we've talked a bit about enhancing our capacities to deal with this. And these are two nations that share values. What What is your perspective on global instability, civilian conflict, reconstruction, stabilization of the world. These are all key issues. That is a a very difficult uh, topic to get to grips with collectively. Single components of it are a bit easier. 
I think that every aspect of the Australian-American relationship, from an Australian point of view, Americans will have a different point of view, but from our point of view, is part of the process we have of comprehensively managing our environment as best we can from the perspective of a, of a middle power with a, uh, with a view that it has global interests and, and has very definite immediate security interests. So there are many ways in which you engage, you engage the global system and the and, and questions on instability and the like. Firstly, um, a helpful uh, thing in managing global problems is if there is global prosperity. So trade issues become critically important. Mm-hmm. United States, after World War II, established globally an open trading system. Now, of course, it has its flaws and it has its uh, requirements for renewal. So Australia is a free trade nation, very accepting of the sorts of rules that were laid down for global trade in the aftermath of uh, World War II. So we have, with the United States, uh, a lot of uh, issues to raise on things like the Doha Round on uh, trade, the, um, something that's got a lot of enthusiasm here, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So you've got the economy. You've got trade out there. Then you've got security. Now, we have an intelligence collaboration with the United States, which is immensely intense. And uh, it is uh, focused, that intelligence collaboration, on all the threats to stability, be they the possibilities of state-on-state war, be they the, 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 the current probabilities of actions by non-state actors. So we have a practical, technical dialogue, if you like, with the United States and a very important collaboration on collecting information associated with that. And then we have approaches to international diplomacy to resolve some of those issues. Australia has very strong commitments in the non-proliferation area. So we are very strongly supportive of the current administration's agenda on non-proliferation. We have a lot to say to the United States about that. And then we have regional, uh, the potentials for regional conflict. And um, we think that the United States plays an important stabilising role in the Asia-Pacific zone. So we encourage the United States into participation in uh, regional uh, political and strategic organisation. We've had some success on that in the last 12 months as the United States decided to join the East Asian Summit, which was an enormously mm-hmm. important decision from our point of view. So there you have it, Patrick. That's, that's across the board, comprehensively, well, trying to deal with those stability it, 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 issues it, you mentioned. And, and, and in many ways, mm. you're looking at issues, first of in, in a widening circle. Mm. I mean, you're looking at the Pacific region, obviously, mm. and trade, yeah. which is really yeah. important. And it's important mm. to the U.S. and it's mm. important to... Um, but then I note with interest that Asia is, of course, of interest to you and mm. to us. Mm. But Australia is also concerned about Afghanistan. Mm. And you actually mm. had mm. troops in Afghanistan. We have troops in you Afghanistan. You have troops in Afghanistan. Um, and there are world issues that are exploding mm. around us yeah. in Libya, mm-hmm. in Egypt, mm. in the Gulf. Mm. Now, why is Australia also concerned about that regional arena in addition to the Pacific arena? Well, that regional arena has a couple of different facets to it, and we react differently to those facets. Let me start with Afghanistan. Uh, We are in Afghanistan for two reasons. The first is we have an an alliance with the United States, and an attack was mounted, uh, organized in Afghanistan on the United States, and that triggered our 60-year-old, this is the 60th anniversary of the ANZUS alliance, it triggered our 60-year-old relationship. The U.S. was attacked from Afghanistan. Uh, proper uh, uh, ultimatums were presented with the government of the day. The United States intervened and we joined in. Uh, we supported. So that was one of the reasons. But then also uh, we recognised, as did the United States, that Afghanistan had become a haven for the training of people who sought to attack us, non-state actors who sought nevertheless to attack us. And um, whereas the United States has experienced directly attacks on its uh, on its homeland and and perceives threats coming through Europe to the United States from the same area, Australia experienced the same thing in Southeast Asia. A lot of Australians were killed in Bali uh, by terrorists who were trained 
in Afghanistan. So we see the, the objective to ensure that Afghanistan is not a safe haven for terrorists again is an objective that we have just as strong a commitment to as the United States has. Hence, we've been there pretty much, uh, not completely consistently, but generally since 9-11. You gave a, an excellent speech in Washington recently on this whole issue of security and terrorism. Mm. And two things leapt out at me. One is the uh, international human rights law. Mm. And the second thing that intrigued me is this right to protect. Mm. These are key political mm. and legal issues. Yeah. Can we talk about those for a bit? Let's, let's discuss the human rights aspect. Mm. Are we dealing with a different context now because of world terrorism where we have to perceive of human rights in a different way? It's always going to be hard to handle isn't it? Because you're always going to have to balance your your human rights concern with your security concerns. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, and I think uh, these events were wholly bad from an American point of view, it was nevertheless intriguing for the rest of the world uh, when the WikiLeaks uh, um, uh, phenomena mm -hmm. occurred to see how consistent... American diplomats were in acting in favour of human rights in countries where they represented. It was very impressive, actually. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I do think that, uh, uh, that the United States is um, trying to get, uh, and it's always a struggle, the correct balance between sort of hard-nosed political and strategic interest, dealing with some of the of the fundamental security problems we've already been talking about, on the one hand, and um, encouraging in, in friends and governments uh, a respect uh, for their people. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be a respect that the Americans would automatically assume ought to be extended and are extended to Americans. So um, those human rights issues are, are never going to be readily resolvable. Uh, but uh, the uh, the question is where is the where is the trend and where is the connection with the right to protect? Uh, well, th th they're intimately bound up. The right to protect is a product of uh, uh, and uh, and Australian um, uh, political leaders and uh, and diplomats have quite a lot to do with the, the beginnings of development of doctrine in regard to right to protect. Gareth Evans, a former foreign minister of Australia, has been at the forefront of this in the work that he's done since he's left politics. And it arises out of the horrors of Rwanda and the fact that we were all fully aware that peoples were being slaughtered and we all did nothing about it, all uh, taking the view that uh, you know what happens inside states is a matter for what happens within states and, uh, and not for the intervention of international organisation. Well, that was clearly shown to be inadequate. But having shown it to be inadequate, then arises the question, what do you actually do about it? And uh, that is being tested at the moment in Libya. Now, this is well outside the area where Australians would normally deploy. So what Australia has done in relation to Libya is provide funds. We're the third biggest donor to handling Libyan problems after the US and the uh, EU. Um, so that's, from our point of view, where we see uh, us acting. But we're very supportive of the idea that actions should be taken that protect civilian populations. Where you end up from that, you don't know. Yeah. But if you, in the first instance, protecting people from being slaughtered, at least you can say that whatever solution emerges to this, it will emerge in a society with a lot more people in it than would have been the case right. otherwise. Yeah. You know, this whole idea of the right to protect is also bound by a disparate world, an uneven world in terms of haves and have-nots. Mm. And so there's another responsibility that we have to take into account, and that is there are challenges mm. based on dissatisfaction with prevailing living conditions mm. by millions of people in the world. And in many ways, that also sparks off terrorism and it sparks off inequities. It's some of the things that spark it off. Rather than sparking off terrorism, it, it creates a set of social circumstances available for exploitation. 
I don't think we should think that contemporary terrorist ideologies are a product of poverty. Good point. They're not really. No. Um, but they can exploit it, and they can exploit those sort of social and political circumstances. But in terms of uh, issues of poverty, uh, absolutely, but the, uh, the view that, that we have about the international trading arrangements is that they've been vital to lifting people out of poverty, and that's a, that's a, that's a factor that uh, engages us on, on trade policy as well as Australian national interest. But then the Millennium Goals that are associated yeah. with alleviating global poverty. Australia, even in our tightened fiscal circumstances, is moving to lift us within the next few years to 0.5% of GDP in foreign aid. So right through this period, our, our foreign aid budget is growing exponentially. I think it's going to end up at about 7 or $8 billion a year. So they say Australia is becoming a larger and larger participant in in uh, foreign donor activities around the globe. And hence we are in a position now with the resources available to be things like uh, the third biggest contributor in uh, in Libya and that sort of thing. Yeah. And your reference to trade is really pertinent mm. because in essence breaking down barriers, mm. opening up access yeah. is going to change the economic environment and that's a key issue. Well, at the end of the day, people in Africa and Asia uh, sense dignity. Yes. In being able to sell into uh, prosperous markets. Yeah. And if you chop them out, it makes life very hard. You really are interested in the civil war, aren't you? It's one of the key interests you have. Yes. And that's been a lifelong interest. Tell me why. And well, like a lot of us in, on, the, on the right side of Labour Party politics back, right. in the, uh, back in the 70s, the American alliance was important to us and we were advocating it within a party in which there are elements in the party opposed to it. So we tried to learn more about the United States and why was the United States so important to Australia? Well, I think the, uh, the answer to that um, is to be seen in the outcome of the Civil War. If, because the outcome of the Civil War was what it was, there was a unified extension of the United States across this continent and then the development as the president sought to reunify the country, which was a, which was a task that took years, decades, uh, the development of a, of a concept of manifest destiny applied to the Asia-Pacific region. That brought the United States in the 20th century into Asian-Pacific diplomacy where it would not have been otherwise. And at the end of the day, that was critical to saving Australia. And, uh, and so you can draw a direct line between our survival in World War II and the outcome of the American Civil War. Really? If it had gone the other way, if the Confederacy oh, had been mean, allowed yeah. to break away... Yes. What would have happened was not an outreach of the United States, but an intense uh, internecine battle across the north of this continent between the north and the south. It wouldn't have stopped at that point. There would have been a struggle between the slave power and the, uh, and the other power for the new American states in the Midwest across to the west. And um, that would have dominated affairs. In all probability, the North would have attacked Canada and tried to absorb it. The South probably would have had a go at Mexico. You'd have seen a totally different political system operating in, uh, in North America, which would have been destructive. It would have been um, insular. And the United States would have played no role in global affairs. This is why Abraham Lincoln is an important Australian politician. And you visited many of the battle sites, I gather. On the eastern side. On the eastern side, yes. I haven't haven't been down through the west. The the, the north won the civil war through the campaign in the west. The the eastern battlefront, which gets all the attention, Gettysburg and uh, Bull's Run and uh, and Chancellorsville and so on, they get all the attention, but it was essentially a holding operation on so, the East Coast. The strategic destruction of the South was wrought down the Mississippi. So historically, an, a wonderful insight into Australian-U.S. relations. <laughs> I had never thought of the Civil War connecting in this way. And the continuing relationships in Afghanistan and recently, of course, Prime Minister Julia Gillard addressing a joint uh, Senate and House congressional mm. session. Um, where does it go in the future? Well, much the same direction as in the past, I hope. Yes. And that is of an intensifying relationship. 
in which we both bring to it our very different perspectives and draw strength from those differences as well as the commonalities. And um, I see no reason why this should not endure. So we've talked about a lot today. You've had many incarnations. Has there been different levels of enjoyment for you in terms of your different roles? Was politics fun? Was there a lighter side to politics? Is being an ambassador more fun or less fun? (laughs) Was it fun being chancellor of the great university, the Australian National University? Maybe this is a a, a little uh, superficial question, but it also comes to the essence of who we are, doesn't it? ANU was fun. Let's let's get that off the uh, off the table immediately. That was yeah. just a year of pure joy. Yeah. That was that was good fun. The rest of the stuff's different. When people ask me whether I'm enjoying being ambassador, I, my expression is, or how I'm finding it, it's relentless, because the United States is so important to Australia that uh, we are constantly obliged to interrogate the American system for for information to. Uh, uh, to satisfy the, the sort of chronic demands at home for uh, whatever it is that's, uh, that's happening here or what they feel about what's happening elsewhere. It's, it's a hard job. It has its enjoyable moments, but it is, rather than being enjoyable, it's worthwhile. And I look at, I look at politics at the same way. It wasn't really enjoyable. It was worthwhile. And, you know, at the end of the day, I know when I die, I will... Uh, at least as I sort of gradually fade on my on my sickbed somewhere, that I will have uh, led a life that is as constructive as possible as I could have made it. And that's important. It's important to be able to say that to yourself. It's been an extraordinary life of public service and dedication. Thank you for meeting with us today. We've been speaking with Ambassador Kim Beasley. This is Patrick O'Mara for Profiles. Thank you for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in April of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.